Turn in the Bible to the book of Zechariah, that Old Testament minor prophet towards the end of the Old Testament, the second to last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah. That's where we've been for quite some time. Been in the minor prophets now for a really, really long time, and we're coming to an end. If you don't know where Zechariah is, maybe you can find Matthew. That's the first book in the New Testament. If you just go backwards just a little bit, you have Malachi and then Zechariah. Zechariah chapter five, we're gonna look at what is the sixth vision. Zechariah gets eight visions in a row here, and that's what we're going through one at a time, and today is the sixth. It's chapter five, but the sixth vision. When I was in high school, I remember I had a friend who his dad flew helicopters, and one day he asked if I wanted to go ride around in a helicopter, and I did, and it was, it was really one of the coolest things I've ever done. I've been in a plane before, but planes are so high, and they're so like uh, secure that it doesn't seem like you're way up in the sky, but a helicopter is not that way, right? It doesn't seem very secure, and you're not very high. You're like right above the houses, and it was really cool flying around in a helicopter, and we did that. And so I've always thought like, man, it'd really be cool to own a helicopter one day and just fly around everywhere. And so now when I see helicopters flying around, I'm like, man, I wonder, wonder what they're doing. And anytime I see a helicopter, and obviously they're rare, right? We don't see helicopters too much. We see planes, but not helicopters. And when I see one, I'll often tell my kids, hey, look, there's a helicopter, and it's cool to see them, right? But if you ever see them long enough, you're like, well, wait a second, what are they doing? Why are they flying around? And sometimes they're close enough that you can see that it says like wave three on the side. Now you're like, wait a second, well, really what are they doing? And why do they keep circling around like our neighborhood? Or why are they around here? And are they looking for somebody? Is there somebody in my backyard that they're looking for, right? That's typically the way it goes when you see a helicopter, right? You, you think, wow, those are awesome. Y'all look at a helicopter. And if it sticks around long enough, you're like, wait a second, this might not be good. And I'm sure you've had those same feelings or thoughts before. In Zechariah's sixth vision, there's a flying scroll. A scroll represents here the word of God. Even stronger, the law of God. And it's flying around and it is inescapable. The word of God is binding on us. It is the truth of God. It is the authority of God. And we cannot be people who are indifferent toward it. I would beg you that if you have not turned to trusting the word of God that you would today, that you wouldn't take somebody else's word for what it says, that you wouldn't be ignorant in thinking that it says things that it, says things that it doesn't say, but instead rather that you would be somebody that believes the word of God and you have looked toward a pastor or a church that will help you to know what it actually says. I hope you would be a reader that would read what it actually says. Because in Zechariah's vision today, we have him seeing a flying scroll going around. And the result of that is not a good thing in our passage today. And the result of it not being a good thing is that they cannot escape it. Read with me, if you will, at Zechariah chapter five. Only four verses. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? 
I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width is 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts. And it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. We've had some wild visions so far. This is really one of the more simple ones. It's not very complicated here. In Zechariah's sixth vision, he sees a flying scroll. He asks him what it is. He says it's a flying scroll. And then he understands that it's pretty big. 20 cubits by 10 cubits. A cubit is about 18 inches. You're looking at 30 feet by 15 feet is how big this scroll is. It's large enough that it's not a little book that's flying around in the air. He's not outside seeing something like this. He's outside seeing something the size of a helicopter flying around, but it's a scroll. They didn't necessarily have books back then, but they had scrolls, these papers that you could roll out, and there would be stuff written all over it. And we are to understand that this is the word of God that he's seeing, more specifically the law. The reason why I say more specifically the law is because we have mention here of two laws. We have uh, stealing and we have here swearing. The scroll represents the law of God and it's flying around. There doesn't seem to be as much confusion. If you remember last week from this uh, fifth vision, just right before it in chapter four, there was a lot of confusion around what he saw. Four different times Zechariah asked, what are these? Or he says, what are these? And Zechariah says, I don't know what these are. Zechariah was struggling to understand the golden lampstands. But here in chapter five, there really seems to be none of that. It's pretty straightforward. This scroll flying around over top of us is now binding on us. It says something to us. The word of God must be in your lives. And I don't mean in your car or on your bookshelf. I mean the very substance of it, what it says, what it means, why he says it, what he means by it is to be a part of our lives. If it's not, I've got good news for you. You can turn yourself toward it today. You can start today with allowing the word of God to speak into your life. You can listen and comprehend today. You can read it. You can say, I want to know more of it. You can say, help me with it. But the vision here today is that the word of God is flying over and it's doing something to them. And it's big. The reason why I think it's flying and it's not a, a, a sun that's just fastened there or, or a cloud that's in the sky, but it's flying, it is to let us know that the word of God is alive, it is active. Remember, the book of Hebrews says this very thing, that the word of God is powerful and living and it is able to get inside of us and it is to do things, right? You remember the passage in Isaiah 55, Isaiah 55, 11, where God says, the, my word will not return void, the very thing that I send it out to do, it will always accomplish the purpose that I've sent it out to do. It's a fascinating verse. We are not to think of the, as the word of God as being you know, a dusty book, but we are to think it, it to be the, the two-edged sword that comes out of the mouth of God that is able to work mightily 
how God wants it to work. We are to understand that God teaches us that it is God's Holy Spirit that takes the truth of his word that applies it to people's hearts. This is why in a world that thinks Christianity is dying or fading, you and I have every reason to understand, this is what the vision was about last week, you and I have every reason to understand that Christianity cannot be stopped. The golden lampstands that represented the church will keep burning. God gave a vision in chapter four of the temple of God, now understood as the church of God, which is the, the, the living temple, constantly being fueled, a continuous supply of oil coming into the lampstands so that it would always be burning. This fits very much so with Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus cannot be stopped. There is a lot of opposition. There is a lot of opposition to God and what he's doing, but he cannot be stopped. But the way he does all of this is according to his word. It is the word of God that is powerful and living. It is the word of God that is the very standard by which we know and understand and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have passage after passage under the teaching of Jesus where Jesus says to know his word or believe his word is to understand him. To doubt his word, reject his word is to not understand Jesus. We know that the Bible teaches us that Jesus is the living word. He is the word in the flesh. He is the fulfillment. He is the living, put on flesh, uh, tangible, touchable thing of the truth and standard of God. We are not to be these people that take it lightly. We are not to be these people who think that we are the measure of what is right or true. And if the word of God fits with what I think or what I believe, then, then I will accept it. Surely you have lived long enough or broad enough to know that the world is full of people with all sorts of thoughts. Even here in the room, we would disagree on a lot of things. We are never, listen, we are never to be the standard for God is truth and God's holiness. I hope you know that. This is why God gave us his word, that we would really know what God is like. So in our vision today, Zechariah's sixth one here in his, in his book, this minor prophet, he sees a flying scroll. The scroll is flying overhead. Now I want to remind you that in Zechariah's context, you've got the people of Israel, they've been in captivity, they've been exiles, now they're coming back into their land and they're trying to establish who they are. But why is it that they're in this struggle? Why is it that they're in this hardship? Why is it that they do not have a temple and that they do not have the priesthood set up? Why is it because... God is punishing and disciplining his people for their disobedience. We cannot talk about any part of redemptive history. We cannot talk about any part of the truth of the Bible, the story of the Bible, without us grasping disobedience toward the truth of God. Now, I realize that some of you all may tune me out right now because of that. I want you to know today that it is true what the Bible wants us to understand. 
that for us to get at the very heart of God and the heart of God's love for us and the heart of God's mercy toward us and his forgiveness toward us, that you and I must believe and admit that we have sinned and disobeyed God. Even when you start talking about Jesus, and boy, there are lots of conversations about him these days. Jesus loving us and dying on the cross for us, which is a beautiful story, happened because of our sins. He says that. So in order for us to have a Christ, a crucified Christ, in order for us to have a cross, in order for us to have a tomb, a buried Christ, a buried dead Christ, in order for us to have a risen, resurrected, living Christ, has to accept that we have sinned against God. The scroll that he sees communicates this. Look what it says in verse Then he said to me, so here is the angel of the Lord's explanation of the flying scroll, the 30 foot by 15 foot flying scroll that Zechariah sees. Here's the explanation, verse three. This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. The word of God disobeyed, rejected, does speak of it being a curse. We are to know this as good and healthy and consistent. If you have a rule with your children that if they don't do this, then they get this. If they don't do this, then they can't have that. Then in turn or in short, that is a punishment or a consequence or a curse upon the rejecting of the rule. God has had it this way since the beginning of time. God told Adam and Eve they could do anything and everything they wanted to in the garden. It was their domain and they were to take care of it. They were to have each other. They were to be naked and unashamed and they were to work the ground and it was a fascinating life that Adam and Eve had there in the paradise garden of Genesis chapters one, two, and three. God gave them one rule, and it wasn't even a harsh one. It was, don't eat from that tree. But if they were to eat from that tree the day they ate of it, God says, you will surely die. Now, I realize at that point, you may tune me out again and think, well, I don't like a God who says that. But if God is a good God and he's in charge, then surely good, helpful rules are that way. If you live on a street that has a lot of traffic, and many of you do, and cars are just zooming by all the time, I hope you have, and I'm sure you already have, implemented the rule to your child that your toddler does not cross the road. Don't get in the road, don't even get near the road, right? And if you do, here's what's going to happen. We're either going to do this or do this or do this, and you can parent however you want to, but I hope you have that rule. Don't get in the road where there is traffic. And that totally makes good sense. And the parents aren't wrong or harsh for being that way. That's a good boundary. That's a good rule. And so it is with all of the rules and boundaries that God has given us. They are according to his good and perfect wisdom that they are good for us. And you and I are to understand that. 
And so when God's good and perfect rule and standard and law has not been received or accepted or, or, or obeyed, then you and I have to understand the curse that comes from God in the way of punishment against it. And that's what we're speaking to here. The reason why the Israelites were in captivity, in exile, is that God had raised up an opposing nation to judge them, to take them and punish them because of their disobedience. They were under the curse of God. Now, you may remember that part of the covenant he established with them in the old covenant was, obey me and I will bless you disobey me, and I will curse you. That's what the old covenant says. Now, the new covenant in Christ is teaching us that God will do a work where he changes our hearts and gives us new hearts to where we want to obey him. So God has not even now put it on us that in our own power we would obey him. That could actually never save anybody. The old covenant could never save. And so what we have found is that everybody who acknowledges the old covenant, indeed everybody who's ever lived, is under the curse, for they have disobeyed God's holy law. But it's only in the new covenant that you and I know that Jesus died to forgive us of our sins, that God's love is bigger than all of our sins. His mercy is more than all of our sins. No matter how much you can sin, God loves you more. No matter how much you can disobey, God has obeyed more in Christ and we can have his goodness and righteousness through him. The new covenant says that God is going to do that work in his people and we believe that and we trust that. But it does not mean that there is not a curse. The curse from, comes from a rejecting of the word of God, a rebelling against the word of God. Look what it says. This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. Look here. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. Now, this is interesting. He's talking about two different sides of the scroll. He names... Two of the laws, or refers to two of the Ten Commandments. Now, I think, you see this happening a lot in the Bible. I don't think he's necessarily singling out just these two. He just mentions two. I think what's happening here is he's referring to the law of God, and he just happens to name two. If you know much about the Ten Commandments, you know that the first four uh, refer to our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods. You shall have no idols, no fake gods. That's the second commandment. No, no graven images that, you're supposed, that you bow down to. That's idolatry. Number three, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Your speech should never ever be in a way that is not respectful or reverent to God. It doesn't just mean saying, uh, you know, oh my God or GD or Jesus Christ in a wrong way. It means speaking in any way that does not revere and respect God. Just a blatant, blabbing, foul mouth is breaking of the third commandment. The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The first four refer to our relationship with God. But then the next six commandments out of the ten refer to our relationship with people. They are honor your father and mother. They are do not murder. They are do not 
commit adultery, do not steal. They are do not bear false witness. They are do not covet. They are all thou shall nots or do nots referring to our relationship with people. And as Jesus has taught us that all of the Ten Commandments sum up all of what God wants us to know about his laws. Some of them are in relation to God and some of them are in relation to people. And so what we have here, it seems, is he's just referring to those two aspects. The do not swear is actually referring to the third commandment. Do not speak in a way that you ought not speak. Do not speak in a way where you mean something that you do not mean. Do not speak in a way where you are talking without an idea and respect and submission to God being God. If you're making a pledge you cannot keep, if you're saying something about somebody that you should not say, if you're saying something about yourself or about God that is not true, these things are swearing wrongly. And he says that one, and then he gives us the one stealing. Because of those two, and people that break those, you'd be under a curse. But those, I believe, are to represent the two aspects of the Ten Commandments. The whole, if you will, of the law of God. Then he says this. Verse four. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts. So now he's speaking to the flying scroll that communicates that not just being a helicopter you observe so that we're all left knowing we don't know what that helicopter was about, right? The honest truth is, is that 99% of the time if you've ever seen that helicopter flying around, you never found out what it was doing, right? There's a chance you turned on the news and you happened to see that there was a helicopter flying over your, uh, your part of town, but the majority of the time you're like, no, I don't know. We're not to think of this in that way. For while verse 1 introduces the scroll, verse 2 describes the scroll, verse 3 further describes the purpose of the scroll, verse 4 tells us now that God is doing something through that scroll. I will send it out. What's he mean? Look what he says. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. This is consistent with all the other passages I've quoted this morning. Y'all, the word of God is inescapable. Try as you might to put it out of sight, out of mind, it is alive, and your conscience cannot escape it. Once you have understood what God says, you cannot get away from it. God is saying here that he sends it out and it ends up in your home, right? Take the example of a thief, somebody who has stolen something that's not his. Just this past week, Val had her van broken into. Somebody busted the window out and stole my wife's purse. What a horrible thing. A very, very stressful week for us. It happened on a Tuesday. It rained every day this week, and we had no window on our van until Friday. That's frustrating, right? You have to figure out how you're going to survive all of that. And there was a part of me as I'm just sitting there thinking like, man, whoever did this, didn't he know that this would make my life complicated? Did he not consider this going to put me out a little bit? Whoever did this, did he not know this is my wife's man? Come on, at least break into mine, not my van. Did he not know that we have kids? Didn't he see the car seats in there, right? 
And as I got to thinking more and more about whoever did this, which I don't know and I never will know, as I got to thinking more and more about who did this, I just started thinking, man, I really wish he hadn't have done this. I really wish he hadn't have done it. And then I started thinking, I wonder if he knows how bad this is on our end. I wonder if he knows that we're now like scrounging to get it all worked out. I had to take off work to go to the body shop and I've made 100 calls to insurance. And I wonder if he knows what it does to us. And then I started wondering, he's probably not thinking about any of that. He's probably not thinking about any of that. He's probably just spending our money and having a good time. And then part of me thinks, what if he never, listen, what if he never ever has to deal with that. But then the Bible reminded me here today that the disobedient cannot escape the curse of knowing that they're wrong and the conviction of feeling that they're wrong. Now, as we read in Psalm 94 today, vengeance is not mine. I'm not looking for that guy to wear him out. He'd probably beat me up anyway. Vengeance is not mine. I'm not wanting you all to think at all about vengeance. It's not even on my radar right now. What I am wanting you to see, though, is that God speaks right here of God's word is able to go and get into our lives. And even if we think, man, I ain't going to church anymore. All they do is preach on hell and bad things. I don't want to hear it. You go back to your house and say, I'm never listening to Josh again. I don't want to hear any more about swearing or, or stealing. And I'm not going back there. I'm not going to listen to him. You go get in your house and guess what follows you there? The truth of the word of God. It does. It'll follow you home. You'll lock the door and think, I'm not even answering the door if Josh comes by. And you know what will follow you there? The truth of the word of God. Now listen, if you don't believe in the mercy of God and the forgiveness of sins, that sounds awful and like a curse. If you believe in Jesus and the mercy of him offering up his life for yours, that he died on the cross for you, then you are so thankful that the word of God is alive and it will run you down. It'll end up in your house. You are so thankful that tonight, on a Sunday evening, as you sit down trying to rest a little bit and watch some TV, or you try to eat dinner tonight, that the word of God would still be binding on your life, that you cannot get away from it. It is not able to be escaped. We are to understand that about the word of God. This is the vision that he sees. Now, we're to think about this in a couple of ways. For the unbeliever that does not believe in God, this lets us know that God is not just saying, y'all get away, out of sight, out of mind. That the truth of God weighs on them and God is able to see and stay on top of every bit of that. And as we know, the, uh, the Bible teaches in other places that everybody will answer to God according to his word. But for the believer, this is to be an encouragement to us. One, in convicting us that our sins are always before us in the sense of disobeying God and his truth. 
But we are to know the rest of the word of God too that also goes with us, that teaches us that even though we have sinned against God, he still loves us. And that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were sinners, as we were these under the curse, Christ died for us. So that it is as a cursed people that we become a blessed people through forgiveness. It is as a cursed people, listen to me, that we become a people who have now been freed from the curse of God. For the very word that convicts us of our sins that we can't escape from is the very word that also tells us how to escape from it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son That whoever believes in him will not perish under the curse. Now how? Why? That's a good vision. You see it. That's really all of the vision. And so I want to ask you to turn with me. We've got a few minutes left and we're going to be done. But I want to get you to see something. Turn with me please. To Revelation chapter 5. The last book of the Bible. It's where we were. Uh, in our New Testament reading. So we've already read this in the service today. And I want to turn you back to another scroll, okay? I want to turn you back to another scroll. Last week, I turned you to Revelation for the gold lampstands, if you were here. And this week, I'm turning you to Revelation for another scroll. We have a scroll in Zechariah, and now we have a scroll in Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. We're still somewhat in the beginning of Revelation at this point. This is John's vision What he sees here is God sitting on his throne in heaven. God sitting on his throne in heaven in Revelation chapter 5. And he says this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. Hey, I'm not saying it's the same scroll because I don't think it is. But in the scroll in Zechariah, they were written on both sides. And in the scroll in Revelation, Revelation is written on both sides. So there's some consistency sealed with seven seals. It's sealed up. You can't open it. You can't break the seal. Verse two, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? That's the question that you need not miss in Revelation five. There's a lot of good stuff in Revelation five, but do not look anywhere past that question. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? There is an issue here in heaven of God on the throne holding a scroll that is sealed up, locked up, and the angels are asking who's worthy to open it. Verse three, no one. In heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. It doesn't matter how much you have locked up. If it can't be unlocked, it's worth nothing. If we can't see what's in the scroll in the hand of God on his throne, then we have less hope. Verse four, I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Do you see that phrase? No one found worthy. You know why? They're all under the curse of having disobeyed the word of God. If you are here today, I want to go ahead and tell you I think you are a fine people. If you're up on a Sunday morning and trying to go to church, you're better than most as we look around, honestly. 
I know the majority of you all, you, you are good people. I'd be more than happy to have lunch with you, hang out with you, or whatever. I'm not saying that you are cursed in comparison to everybody else. I'm not saying you're the worst people in town. What the Bible wants us to understand is that according to God, you are not on his level. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Your disobedience to God's holy standard has made you lower than him. That is to uh, rock you a little bit. That is to break you down a little bit. But that is not to ruin your life. That is to cause you to look back to God for the answer. Okay. Hey, Josh, I'm under the curse. I see that it says I'm cursed because of my sin. I'm under the curse. Now, what do I do? And that's what we're looking at. No one was found worthy. Okay, verse five. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. As a lion, a conquering lion. Verse six. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went, look at verse seven. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. In the midst of the question, in the scene of heaven, who is worthy? No one is found worthy, but then they are told about this conquering lion who is also a slain lamb. Now take those two awesome descriptors of one being, the conquering lion and the slain lamb, and who could that be? That is Jesus. He is the God-man who is unstoppable, who gave up his life. He is the one that has all complete sovereignty. He has power and authority over everything in heaven and on earth. God and Son, Jesus Christ, is the most unstoppable being. He is God. And yet, he gave up his life and was crucified on the cross and shed his blood. He is the slain lamb, and he is the one who is worthy to go and take the scroll from God. And when we know that he is able to do that, the song of heaven is that you are worthy, Jesus. You are a redeeming, ransoming God that gave your life on the cross for us. Forgiveness of sins, newness of life, peace beyond the curse, hope beyond the curse, purpose in our lives, fulfillment in our lives can be found in Christ even though my sins and my sins and my disobedience have brought a curse upon me, not because God's wrong, but because he's right, but because I'm wrong. God is right and I am wrong and my sin has brought a curse on me, but the Bible does not want you to stop understanding that you're cursed. It wants you to understand that you're cursed by disobeying the word of God, but that you are seeing that Christ is the answer. When we read Zechariah's vision on the scroll, my mind goes to Revelation 5 and that scroll. But if you think that jump is a little too much, then turn with me now to Galatians chapter 3 and we'll stop there. 
I'm even gonna give you time to find it. I want you to find it, Galatians. If you've never seen this before, then you need to. Galatians is in the middle, after 1st, 2nd Corinthians, before uh, Ephesians and Philippians. It's kind of about right there. Does that help? I know that doesn't help. I know that doesn't help. So if you're in the New Testament, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. If you've never seen this before, then I think it's going to bring it all together. We, we see the, the flying scroll, which represents the curse because of our disobedience to the law. And then I'm going to Revelation 5 because we have a scroll there where this conquering lion, slain lamb is able to get the scroll from God. But Galatians 3, Paul explains how that goes together. Galatians 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. That's pretty simple, right? For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. It's like Paul's explaining Zechariah's vision, right? Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ, Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Yes, it's true that God is holy and if you've ever disobeyed him even once, you're now under the curse. But I'm not a street preacher that's just out here trying to beat people down. That same book that says that says that his son became that curse for you to redeem you back to God. What a God. What love. What mercy. What a plan. He's saying we're cursed. And before you walk away angry, he says, but I'm going to curse my son even worse for you. He's going to not ever sin and be cursed, but because my love is so broad and so big, I'm going to curse him for you, and I'll bring you back to me. If you are here today, and you feel or have felt or are feeling that this world is cursed, it beats you down, you're left in tears. If you feel that, don't deny it. Don't try to wish it away. Don't try to act like it ain't true. Understand Hey, that's real world. That's real talk. We're under the curse. But also see that God also says, Jesus became the curse for you. He took your curse. He took your sins out of his love so that you could be redeemed. If you have not come to Christ, if you've not come running back to God, if you've not come back to God saying, God, forgive me, and I know you do because I understand that, 
Would you? Would you look afresh at Christ? Would you say, thank you, God. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for love. Thank you for Jesus. That the curse that's on me has been dealt with in Christ. Flying scroll. Remember, it was just a vision. It wasn't really a flying scroll. It wants us to know that the word of God means something. And the word of God teaches us that we need a savior. It's time for us to be a people committed to the savior. Today, may God move your heart to trust and rest in Jesus, the redeemer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Zechariah's vision. Thank you, God, for us being able to be honest about the curse, but that Jesus became the curse. Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts, that we would confess our sins, repent and turn to you, and cling to Jesus. Father, help us now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.